Heavenly Father, thou art a great God, and the fact that we can approach thee in such a straightforward way is testament to thy great love toward us. And Heavenly Father, as we would look into thy word now, we would pray for thy presence to be among us, that the words that we would hear would be beneficial to our souls and would be according to thy word. Be with those that are going through difficulties. We're mindful of many that have lost loved ones recently. We ask for thy presence and thy grace to be upon them and thy mercy and thy love to surround them, that they may feel, in a, in a meaningful way, may feel thy presence and experience thy comfort and peace. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. For this afternoon's meditation, I've, I've selected a portion of scripture to begin with. There's going to be a few uh, different portions that we'll read, Lord willing, throughout this message. But if you'll join me in turning to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. I believe this was meditated on not that long ago, but I would like to focus on one portion. Isaiah 40, beginning with the ninth verse. O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? As I mentioned the last time I spoke from this pulpit, I'd like to preach a series on the attributes of God because I think what we believe about God is the foundation for how we will look at the world and how we will view ourselves. And therefore, it's important that we have the proper idea of what God is like. And so with the Lord's help, I'd like to speak about the immensity of God, his greatness. Now, you'll remember last uh, time I spoke, it was about the infinitude of God. And you'd think, well, aren't those the same? They are related, but they are not quite identical. We read here in this passage in Isaiah about God's vastness. It says, the nations are like a drop in a bucket, and it's the small dust of the balance. 
the negligible things in a balance that would throw off the weight perhaps ever so slightly but weren't even taken into account. One of the first prayers our children learn is, begins with the words, God is great and God is good. And both are true. But I think sometimes we're like the children. We don't really understand what that means or how it might impact us personally. In our modern environment, where we're so used to control, we control the heat, we control uh, the lights, we can control uh, many, many things about our environment. We forget, we're a little bit removed, I think, from our own insignificance in light of the greatness of God, even against, measured against his creation. God's greatness is not just one of measurable size, and I hope that was clear from last, the last message about the infinitude of God. God cannot be measured. His circumference is nowhere, and his center is everywhere. If you want to think about it in mathematical terms, there's no place where he isn't because he fills all things. But it's more than that. There's, there's, a, there's a, an attribute of God called his imminence. The fact that he fills and permeates all things. That's kind of a hard thing to wrap our heads around because if you remove it from the personality of God, it sounds kind of like the, the Hindu idea of God, that God is in a rock and tree and so on. And that's not it at all. He's still a personality. He's still the one who loves and feels. But if we were to turn to uh, Psalm 139, I'll just read a short section from that for you. We get a little picture from David. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but Lord, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. There is no place that God is not. And his imminence means that he is within all things, but not, con not constrained. He is encompassing all things, but not excluded. He is above all things, but not, uh, not pushed up. Neither, and he is beneath all things, but not pushed down. He is everywhere within all things, ministering and providing for us. This is a big idea. This is hard to understand. The writer of Hebrews points at it in another way. It says, all things are sustained by the word of his power. His word is holding all things together. So what does that mean? 
God is perfect. Whatever he does, he does perfectly. I am by at least a small measure an artist to some extent. At least I've done drawings before and some paintings and a little bit of sculpture. And there's things that I don't show to anyone because I'm not happy with them. They get filed in the circular file. But if I create something that I like, I show it to people. I try to get their reaction. Do they like it as well? But I never show something to someone that I don't like myself. Now, God himself is perfect. So it's inconceivable that he does not love what he makes. Because he made it, he loves it. And because he loves it, he keeps it. If you love something, you try to hang on to it. If there's some particularly treasured article that you have, perhaps something from a loved one that's passed on, that occupies a special place. You know exactly where that thing is, and you make sure not to lose it. God is no different. I think we forget that the the practical outworkings of the imminence of God, the fact that he is in everything, working in everything, sustaining everything, holding everything up, he's doing it because he loves loves it, and he loves us by extension. God is delighted in himself. If you remember the words... Uh, many times in the, in, the, in the Gospels, God said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There is an enthusiasm in God. God is never indifferent about anything. He either loves with a boundless love or he hates with a consuming hatred. There's no in-between with God. And what he makes, he loves. And what he loves, he keeps. And each new child of God, that's you, brother and sister, each child of God, he loves and rejoices over. You remember what he told us about uh, the parable of the, of the good shepherd that left the ninety and nine, and he laid that, that lost sheep on his shoulders rejoicing. Do you remember what he said about Job in the Old Testament? He said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He was proud of Job. He loved him. He was one of his special ones. One who did not sin with his lips and honored God. And it says, eschewed evil, left it alone. That's the kind of God we serve. One who's enthusiastic enthusiastic about his creation. I mean, you only have to watch some of the nature documentaries that I've seen to get a sense of of the marvel and wonder of God. Don't you think he's excited? You know, when I show something to someone that I've made, I'm excited about it, and I want them to be excited. And and especially if there's something there that's a particular notice. Did you notice this? This This is what I was trying to do over here. I get that same sense from God. 
with his creation. When he, he shows us the, the, the incredible range of creativity that he displayed, and that's only on this one little speck in his universe. What do the boundless heavens contain? What do the worlds beyond worlds contain that we would marvel at? Man puts bigger and bigger telescopes into space now because of you know, atmospheric uh, issues and so on, so they launch telescopes now into space. And as the, as the layers of, of, of distance and time are peeled back and we peer further and further into the cosmos, we're amazed at what we see. And just when we think we've figured out one riddle of the cosmos, two more are added. And the questions keep getting bigger. And the God who made them, at least in our mind, gets bigger yet. And he did this for us. There's no other creature that can delight in the works of his hands like us. We are made in his image. And he delights in us. So why are we not more happy? Why are Christians now, Christians, mind you, so stressed, so down in the mouth? Why are we not more joyful when we serve a God that's as vast as he is and yet who loves us so much with a boundless enthusiasm? We get enthusiastic about other things. Sports teams, movies, the latest show on Netflix or whatever. Hobbies. Not necessarily bad things either. But we can get excited about that. But to think that the God of this entire universe is excited about us. And we're so blasé about him. What is wrong? What went wrong that that happened? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But the important thing is what kind of faith is God looking for? Faith exists in two forms. There is the nominal faith, and there's the real or the actual faith. The nominal faith is objective and impersonal. It can quote texts. It can even quote Hebrew and Greek. And it makes no practical difference in the life. There are those who are experts in the Bible and remain absolutely unchanged by its truth. There are those that have learned verses in Sunday school, hymns, can perhaps even quote them from memory, and yet it has made no practical difference. Why? They never knew the God behind the Word. The Word remained to them a dead text. Have you ever noticed that in the dialogue between the Pharisees and the scribes and Christ? They knew what the word said. They could quote it. 
The scripture was at their fingertips. And yet they never understood the God of the word. Christ had to say to him, if ye had known my father, you would have known me also. And he reminded them of their forefathers that had known God in a personal way of Moses and Abraham. He says, you're not doing the works of Abraham. You call Abraham your father, but he's not your father. You bear no relationship or resemblance to him. You see, we can exhaust this outer word. We can take the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, word by word, and parse out its meaning and be done with it. And we have nothing more than a dissected dead text that you may understand um, with your intelligence, but makes no difference. Christ says was the word made flesh came to us. And the more, I, as I've been thinking about that myself, he, he called himself the way. I am the way. The door was another analogy he gave. I am the door. The one way. Now, a door has a defined opening. There are dimensions to it. You can measure it out. It has an edge. But there's nothing constraining where a door can lead Christ came as a man, God as a man among men. And he was limited as a man was limited. But he was showing something through what he was living that was infinite. To look through Christ, to understand who he was, was to open yourself up to infinity. And if you remember the, the, the scripture passage that I read last time, Colossians 3, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. That's where we're home. In the, in the infinitude that is God. And when we consider a, a God that's so great, a God that fills all things, that supports all things, that keeps things from flying apart that does so with a boundless enthusiasm, with a love and a desire for us. How can we be happy with things? How can we be happy with the, the limited, finite things in this world? Some of you are younger than me and perhaps you still think there's that perfect something or other out there that you can find. The perfect movie, the perfect travel experience, the perfect person. Let me save you some time. You won't find it. Perfection only exists in God. And that's the beauty of it. Philippians 3, 7 and 8. But what things were gained to me, those 
I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Everything else in the world, when Apostle Paul measured it up, he said, if I could have everything, that wouldn't be nothing compared to God. That would actually be a negative. It would be a loss if I missed out on God. Christ himself said, and I think it's in Matthew 16, what shall a man profit if he gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? So why is it that we chase the gifts of God and the experiences that this life has to offer and forget the giver? I, I look at it this way. You know, based on Colossians 3, your life is hid with Christ in God, that that is a journey into infinity. The irony of the Christian life is that having apprehended Christ, been apprehended by Christ, we yet still don't fully apprehend him. We're still chasing him. It's a glorious eternal pursuit, I think C.S. Lewis called it, something like that. That, there's, that there's, there's, there's no end to God. And to pursue God is only to find him in more and more things at a deeper and deeper level as we head into the heart of God. It's like a stream. And in that stream, as our eyes are focused on God and we're heading towards him, as we're understanding more about him, he gives us things. There are gifts that come our way from him. And we can hold those things and rejoice in the giver. But if we turn around in that stream and start chasing after those gifts, perhaps after God has decided that they need to be uh, let go of because there's something better that's coming from him, in a newer, deeper experience with him, and we turn around and start chasing the gifts, find out how much we miss. And nothing, nothing will satisfy. The fact, the internet is an interesting place. It amplifies human foibles and oddities. Something that would have been considered quite odd if you were to mention it to someone else in, con in conversation. You can find a user group for it online, and that group of like-minded people will discuss that particular item ad infinitum, just to no end. There's, there's, There, there's a uh, 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 almost a group for, for anything. You pick it, there's a group of people that have made that their most important thing in life. But it's interesting to note, I, I used to be part of a sort of a special interest group online too, and there reaches a saturation point. You know, there's this, this kind of a curve that happens whenever you adopt a new hobby or a new interest. There's the discovery. There's the initial excitement where you're starting to warm up to the idea. Then there's the, then there's the, the period of time where it's really fascinating and enthralling and it just absorbs your, 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 your interest and your unoccupied waking moments. But then there comes a point where it sort of levels off and 
you've kind of, you, you've reached a point of, of your own saturation where it's like, well, what, is, what do these things really mean anymore? It, it doesn't, these differences that people even are arguing about sometimes online, do, do they really matter that much? And there becomes this point then where it sort of levels off and then, then there's this torpor that sets in. It's like it's not that exciting anymore and then you look for something else. That's the cycle of looking for anything apart from God. So you see, with God, the pursuit of God, the hunger for God, is not something that follows that same pattern. It actually, that curve gets steeper and steeper the deeper you go into the heart of God, the more exciting he becomes. And I've experienced that as well. Even over this last year, that's been fairly difficult for me. There's been this maturing that's gone along with it. I know I still have a long way to go, and there's, there's plenty in me that is still not conformed to his image, but there's a new level in many things where I can, I can look at it and think, how did I miss this before? What have I done with all those years that came before me when I was wasting time? And what can I yet do with the time that God's given me? There's only one answer to the hunger that's inside every man. And that's God. Nothing else is as like God as the soul of man in the entire universe. Nothing else so reflects him in a limited way as the soul of man. And we will never be happy until we are, until he is our, he is our sole object. The one thing that fills all of our vision then we can accept good gifts from him and still thank the giver. And when he asks us to release them, we can let them go because we know something better is coming. That's the point Apostle Paul was at. He said, look, it's it's needful for me to stay here with you, but it's better for me to go on. There's something already better coming. And I don't really desire to stay here any longer than I need to. A God that large. A God who loves us. You know, it's enthusiasm, right? It's it's kind of contagious, isn't it? When someone is really excited about something, you know, they say a good salesman is an excited salesman, one who really believes in his product and what he's trying to sell. It's infectious. When we draw near to God, I think we, we... we start to take on the same enthusiasm that he has, not just uh, for the things of God, but for the people of God. And not just the people of God, but those that are still lost. Their needs become important. Too often I live for myself, and I've not had the same enthusiasm that God has for those he's looking to save. May God grant all of us the opportunity to realize that God cannot be added to things. It cannot be your job and God, your family and God, your hobby and God. It must be God and God alone because one day that will be all we have. One day we will stand before God absolutely stripped of everything that we ever were or had. And that prospect is either very, very comforting 
or terrifying. If our faith is a real kind of faith, then that is enough. Because one who knows that he has God knows he has everything. There is nothing missing. But one who's clinging only to the gifts and not acknowledging the giver, that can be terrifying. If, if we really believe the words that we've read about the God that we serve, there is no reason why Christians should not be the most joyful people in all the world. Because we realize that whatever we have, whatever we've been given, whatever God brings into our life is indeed from him and is for our good because he loves us and he's making us into his image. We are his workmanship, Scripture says. And he's delighting to make of us something worthy of his great name. May God bless the words that we've heard. Could a brother please find a hymn? Impersonal. Real faith being subjective. Something that we experience. And personal. You only need to read the Psalms. Why is it that Christians so love the Psalms. Have you ever wondered that? It's because the Spirit of Christ dwells in the Psalms. The cry of the heart to God. You see, Christ always dwelled in the presence of his Father, except for that brief time when he was on the cross and cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Until that time, he lived in the presence of his Father and delighted in him. Do you remember when the, when the 70 returned? It says about Christ, he rejoiced in spirit and said, O Father, I thank thee that thou, hast not, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto the babes. God was doing his work and Christ was excited about it. What are you excited about? What lights you up in colloquial speech? Is it God? Anything less will disappoint you. You'll be let down. But when God, when God is the focus, the excitement only gets better. There's always something deeper there. And then the word itself, you know this parallel between nominal faith and real faith, exists also between Revelation and illumination, when we look at the Word of God. Revelation is simply understanding the Word. It's revealed to us. It's shown to us. But that's not enough. We need to be illuminated by the Word. The Spirit has to speak to us through its pages. Revelation, like I said, we can be done with explaining a verse and set it aside. But illumination, there's no end. Because the Word of God is infinite shall not pass away. There's only one thing that won't pass away. <laughs> Had no beginning, no end. That's God. The Word made flesh was Christ. And so, when we begin to see through the text to the one behind it, then, then we start our journey into the heart of God. What does that look like? It's not complicated. 
Do you remember the song from Sunday school? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's the heart of one who's moved beyond the text into relationship with the one who wrote those words. To know that there is one behind all of this, so great that the heavens cannot contain it, contain him, and yet still loves me, in spite of knowing me completely. That, that is a great God. If we lack excitement when we read the word of God, ask that God would stir those coals of our heart, stir up that fire again, that we would see him and stop just seeing words on a page. The bare word is never enough. It's the spirit that makes the word alive. That's the difference. The Pharisees had the same word Christ did, the same texts he quoted, and yet they did not see the one who wrote it. Let that not be true of any of us. May God bless the word that we've heard this afternoon, and may he dismiss us now with his blessing. Amen.